Researchers have shared that their trials to treat peanut allergies is most successful with younger children, infants even. And the only silver lining on having something stolen is having it recovered. We have a surprising story about a labor of love and a heist and a discovery. But first, you may be feeling done with COVID-19, but its subvariants are not done with us. We find out why it's important as ever to take precautions to avoid getting infected. Well, you may have missed this, but last Friday, Canada's chief public officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, noted the rise of COVID-19 subvariants. Joining us to talk about this on the line now is Colin Furnest, or Colin Furness, epidemiologist with the University of Toronto. Good morning, Colin. Good morning. Colin, uh, first, let's let's talk about this term subvariants. How what is they what is a subvariant, and how are they different from the term variant that we hear more generally? It's a subjective term, really. Uh, what it says is the virus is changing and evolving, and has it changed or evolved substantially, or is it really just a small variation on a current theme? And so, when we say subvariant, uh, I guess what we're saying is it's it's Omicron still, but okay. it's got a slight twist, something new. And when we talk about that with Omicron, usually we mean immune escape. In other words, a subvariant that could reinfect you within a few weeks of your last infection, which is something that we really hope would happen. Oh, wow. Yeah, Dr. Tam said that the subvariants demonstrated a growth advantage and additional immune escape. What does that mean? So immune escape is the is really the main thing with the with the so-called BA variants, and that simply means that the the virus is is able to trick our immune system and get past it, even though we would have high antibodies from a recent uh, COVID infection. So that's that's what immune escape. It just means it can hit you again. Um, growth advantage means that it is particularly good at reproducing. So it's just essentially becoming a better, a more effective, or a more efficient version of itself in terms of. Uh, uh, reproducing within a host and then spreading to someone new. Okay. So you mentioned it's still Omicron, but with a twist. Are symptoms of subvariants the same as Omicron ones? There's probably some subtle changes, some subtle shifts. That's that's actually quite likely, but we really can't say what they are because we're not doing the kind of measurement we would need to do. Generally with Omicron, I think we see more uh, gastrointestinal presentation, so you're more likely to have the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. That's That's been pretty characteristic of Omicron, so it could be that there's more of that, but honestly, if you're not doing really careful tracking, and, and I mean at the, at the level of the genome, it, it can be very, very difficult to detect those subtle changes. Okay, this is this doesn't sound good. This sounds uh, like, uh, you know, something that we should have feared. Is it what we expected would happen, though, that these subvariants would would begin to arise? Uh, you know, that's a that's a tough one to answer. I think in all honesty, none of us really saw Omicron coming in the first place. And I think we're still coming to grips with the fact that this virus has, I won't exactly say outsmarted us or outwitted us, but it surprised us uh, at, at every step with its its adaptability and its ability to become more efficient. Um, I honestly, it it's it really it really does boggle the mind. So when you say are we, are we surprised? I guess I continue to be surprised and and dismayed. Now it's not producing more serious disease overall, and I think that's important. The evolution is contagiousness. The evolution is reinfection. That's a problem. That's a really big problem. But it's not as bad a problem as it would be if the virus was producing worse disease in people. 
Okay, that's interesting. Uh, can we expect, do you think, a surge of COVID-19 cases in summer because of the sub-variants? Possibly. Uh, what we don't have is a really good picture of the subvariance in circulation in BC right now. Cases are dropping. Clearly, whatever wave BC's had is subsiding. That's great. Um, and if we knew what the composition was among all the different subvariants, we could answer that question. I think it's it's likely. I mean, we find that we find that uh, reinfection within a few weeks is possible. And so, if the population has had a wave, normally we would expect months to go by. COVID seems to be operating in something like three-month cycles. If that's the case, then you're in the clear for the summer, and, and we'd see a rise in the fall. My concern is the fact that we've dropped protections, and that's happened everywhere. We've dropped the need for masks in many places. We have stopped doing uh, isolation in many cases. We have stopped testing. Uh, we're really kind of pretending it's not there. I think that's dangerous, because when it starts to come back, it can really pick up steam in a way that, that actually is avoidable. So, but I'm hedging my answer, right? My answer is we could have a very clear summer in BC or because we're being careless, um, you know, in a sense, we could start that forest fire. We could, we could ignite another wave and, and it, it, it honestly could go either way. Yeah, you mentioned there that people have dropped their prevention tactics. I've seen that just anecdotally around myself everywhere. Um, and then I keep hearing of people getting reinfected. I didn't know it could happen as quickly as a few weeks. So is there a concern then that sometimes people are getting infected again, getting reinfected and not bothering to test because they think, oh, I just had it. It certainly couldn't be COVID-19 again. Yes, I think that I think you put your finger on it. I've heard more and more people explaining COVID in terms of severe allergies. Uh, one person I know thinks they got a cold from their dog, which you know the only thing you can really catch from your dog these days is in fact COVID. Uh, it's it's there's it increases deniability. It it really does, and I think that's a problem. I think that's the the more detached we become from this reality, the more dangerous socially our situation gets, and and so that there's no question that's concerning. I think the record for reinfection is about twenty days. That's not common, but that's, I think that's what I'm told is the record. Wow, that's really quick. And if someone gets COVID-19 now, I, I think as many people continue to, I keep hearing about people get it, folks getting it again and folks who've gotten it recently. Is it safe to assume that they are catching a sub-variant? Yes, yes. The, you're very likely... There will be some exceptions, maybe for people who are immune compromised, but there are. But you're you're almost certainly catching a different subvariant than the one you had. The only, uh, actually, there's one exception to that, which is COVID can persist in your body for many, many months. We think this is what's driving some long COVID cases, not in your lungs, so you feel like you've gotten better. And you may have heard of Paxlovid being taken for five days by people, and then the, the disease, you know, boomerangs back, and so it can feel perhaps like reinfection. But if that's the case, the virus. Is has been hanging out in one of the organs in your body and is then starting to branch out again. So that's also possible, and that's not fun. Interesting. Given everything you've just told us, should we be adjusting our behavior right now? I think people should be doing what they need to do to avoid getting infected. And there's no point talking about this at a policy level anymore because governments have been very clear that they're not interested in, in doing much with COVID prevention now. And so it falls on the individual. But I, I want to be really clear. COVID is a very dangerous virus. It's, it's, it causes cardiovascular damage that is cumulative and severe. It causes brain damage that is cumulative and severe. Uh, it causes uh, autoimmune disease, uh, which can be severe. Uh, we have seen total liver failure in small children. These, 
these sorts of things or an increase in your risk of type 2 diabetes of about 50%, which to me is terrifying. These are bad. These are very, very bad outcomes. And the more often you get infected, uh, the more you are playing the Russian roulette in terms of is COVID going to really do you a, a, a bad service? And, uh, you know, my, my, my advice to everybody is take this seriously. You know, we can't hide forever, but we can be smart, we can be vigilant, uh, and we can avoid excessive risk. Dr. Furness, just quickly, what about kids' vaccines and getting them approved in Canada? Where's that at? Well, I'm I'm waiting. I mean, personally, my kids are both over five, so this for for me personally, it's it's not an issue. But but socially, yes. Uh, the biggest concern I have with our dismantling protections is we've just kind of forgotten of all the kids who are under five who can't be vaccinated. They represent a very large proportion of hospitalized children. So this is a group that's hugely at risk. And that's my way of saying, if I had a child under five, I would get them vaccinated first available opportunity. And given that the CDC in the U.S. has just approved that, I'm hoping we follow suit and I hope we do it quickly. Dr. Colin Furness, thanks for being with us this morning and giving us your time on Father's Day. My pleasure. Thank you. Food allergies are awful for children that experience them. And when it comes to peanut allergies, parents also uh, are stressed by it. They have to constantly stress by, uh, you know, the fact that their children might accidentally be exposed to peanuts in various environments. But what if we could do away with peanut allergies? Researchers are working on this problem at BC Children's Hospital Research Institute. And Dr. Edmund Chan is the head of allergy and immunology at UBC Pediatrics. He joins me on the line to talk about this now. Good morning. Good morning, Raji. Dr. Chan, what does the latest research and the trials around peanut allergy treatment show us? Yeah, so our research in the past few years has showed that preschoolers have better safety and effectiveness for peanut oral immunotherapy treatment than older children. And this new research that we just published builds upon that by demonstrating that infants less than 12 months have particularly uh, excellent safety outcomes, even better than the preschoolers between one to five years of age, and equal effectiveness. And, and for safety specifically, the infants had fewer moderate reactions. Uh, uh, for example, also only one out of the 62 infants that we followed during the buildup process needs epinephrine, so fewer than the uh, older preschoolers. So we were very happy with these results. Wow. So the younger, the better. And as, and as young as un, below 12 months, so infants. I'm wondering, how do you select candidates for this? Like, how do you even anticipate that somebody might be likely to develop a peanut allergy? Yeah, these days, typically, it's through the process of trying to prevent peanut allergies. So for, you know, about a decade uh, and, and more than that, we've been uh, flipping around and now recommending as early introduction of non-choking peanut as possible at around six months of age and wow. uh, giving it regularly after that. And in that process, most infants will tolerate it, but then there's going to be a subset that react and then will you know, be diagnosed with peanut allergy eventually. And what we're trying to do is uh, really uh, shorten the window uh, between diagnosis and treatment because traditionally an infant would get the diagnosis and then wait for years on waiting lists to be assessed uh, for this uh, treatment. But now our research suggests there, there's an urgency to this. Uh, the infants should be triaged so that the treatment starts before they turn one year of age. How common are peanut allergies? 
In most uh, countries like Canada, uh, they're between 2 to 3% uh, of the population. And so, yeah, that's what we see in Canada. Our best study suggests around 2%. Um, so it's common uh, when you compare it to other yeah. childhood uh, conditions. Dr. Chan, decade over decade, are peanut allergies up? Because they seem, just anecdotally, they seem quite common now. Yes, they, they have been increasing over the decades. Uh, whether they will continue to increase, it's a big question mark. The best uh, data we have is from Australia, where they have been doing prevalence studies through oral challenges where they feed infants uh, peanut uh, and see if they truly react. That's the gold standard type of uh, assessment. And they've shown in Australia among the highest uh, rates of peanut allergy. um, So let's say around 3%. uh, And they've also shown that in the past decade in Australia, they've been successfully able to get parents to feed non-choking peanut earlier in infancy. But despite that success, uh, there's some recent data saying that uh, the peanut allergy is still very common. It, it hasn't uh, continued to increase at the same rate, but it's still very high and, and it hasn't decreased. And so what I feel is um, missing in our uh, 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 goal to prevent peanut allergy is parents giving it regularly. And the advice is typically like several times a week, for example, three times a week which is easier said than done for busy parents. And now we're having to have these conversations about not just peanut, but other allergenic foods like tree nuts and sesame and and so on and so forth. Oh, so interesting. And is it too late once a child is older since your your recent uh, study has looked at uh, the younger, the better? It's not too late. We are just sort of striving for, you know, the best possible outcomes. The preschoolers between one to five years of age, we've you know, done quite a bit of research showing that those children are also having excellent outcomes. It's just that the infants were, were really, really good. Uh, and then uh, for those six years and up, it's not that oral immunotherapy is not possible. It's just that there's more risk. You know, there's more chance of uh, severe reaction during the process. And to deal with that, our research team is also tackling other approaches. Uh, we've started piloting, for example, doing sublingual peanut uh, immunotherapy uh, as an initial phase to get the uh, process going. So there's other strategies that we can do, but it's really easiest with the infants. That's what we're really seeing with this latest research. So let's talk about that. With the infants, talk to us about what oral immunotherapy actually looks like and how it works. Yeah, so... The process involves three primary components. There's uh, an initial build-up phase where we start with a very, very small amount of peanut protein. Um, and then if that is tolerated, then the family continues that amount at home for a few weeks and then comes back to clinic and then we build up to the next level. And there's about eight to 10 of those build-up visits, uh, following which we reach Uh, what we call a maintenance dose. And so the maintenance phase is the second phase where they continue that desired amount, which in the case of this study was roughly one peanut uh, or 300 milligram protein. That is continued in our protocol for a year until you reach the third uh, uh, phase of the whole process, which is doing the oral challenge. And for that, 
uh, about 80% of the infants were able to tolerate a full serving, which is about uh, uh, a one and a third tablespoons of peanut butter. And, and so that process is offered for infants who have uh, really convincing peanut allergies. So we start with, uh, you know, getting the diagnosis right uh, and then following that these three uh, phases and so the whole journey to get to that oral challenge will take about a year and a half at least. Wow how dangerous is the treatment when you're sitting there administering uh, the therapy to a child that is as young as six months? Yeah so it's very safe in this infant age group. Uh, We had no uh, infants who had severe reactions throughout any of those three phases. Only one infant in that initial buildup phase was given epinephrine for a reaction that wasn't severe. And this is different. This is, again, this is the focus. This is different than the experience and the research that we've done for the one to five-year-olds. And it is in concert with other studies showing that when infants get anaphylaxis, it's less severe and less common than in older age groups. There's been studies, for example, where infants have been brought to the emergency room uh, uh, for anaphylaxis, and uh, invariably, their reactions are milder. Um, So, yeah, this was just something that uh, really impressed us. There's this sort of reverse uh, logic when it comes to practitioners and parents. They think that this treatment is more risky in infants because they're nonverbal, and they can't tell us verbally how they're feeling. Right. But uh, in contrast, our, our studies, were, our, our, our results are just the opposite of that. So fascinating. Just quickly, do you know why the anaphylaxis is less uh, dramatic in an infant than it would be in an older kid or an adult? Yeah, you know, we're not entirely sure why, uh, but it ha- probably has to do with a variety of factors. One is that infants are too young, generally speaking, to develop asthma. And so um, when, when children are old enough to have asthma, that's an additional risk factor. The peanut allergy itself is just new in an infant. And the immune response to it is not as uh, persistent and longstanding as it is for the older children. Uh, and so severity uh, probably is milder for that uh, reason. Um, and, you know, th- there's just a more to be discovered really about severity. It's, it's one of those things that we, uh, as a specialty, are really, really um, interested in learning more about. So fascinating, Dr. Chan. Thank you for sharing that information with us. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been very, very, you know, rewarding doing this research, going through and uh, sharing this information so that we can finally help to reduce uh, outcomes such as uh, anxiety, Uh, bullying or poor quality of life, which have been associated with uh, living with food allergy long term. And um, with healthcare resource limitations, it's nice to be able to, you know, say that this age group should be done more urgently, for example. Yeah, game changer. Thank you, Dr. Chan. Yeah, thank you, Raji.
Well, over the pandemic, some people took on ambitious home projects. One Vancouver man made himself a boat. That's much more impressive than me and my little crochet project. Well, he was hoping for its maiden voyage to happen one of these days, and then it was stolen. Yes, the boat was stolen from the family's East Van Homes alleyway. Uh, But it's now, good news, been found. Joining me on the line is Julie McDonald, the wife of Duncan, the owner of the boat. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Well, you sound chipper, and I'm guessing you're pretty elated? I'm very tired because it's been a very crazy 24 (laughs) hours, but we are absolutely... That is such a great word. We are elated to have Salar Duda back. Yes. Yeah, so great. Salar Duda is back in your lives. Okay, now tell me how you got the news that the boat was discovered. Well, so I le- Duncan still took the kids um, with the other dads and the other kids camping. It's a great Father's Day secret to send your husband and the kids camping. Oh, I like um, it. <laughs> you get the weekend off. Um, so they, we sent them camping, and um, yeah, so I was just on the bus on the way home, uh, and he called me, and, and I could tell by his voice immediately that it had been found, and uh, said it was at the Coast Guard. So off I headed to the Kitsilano Coast Guard. Um, yeah, and then wow. they were lovely there. And uh, I don't know. I don't know all, all the details that people want to know. Wow. So um, they found it in False Creek? Yeah. So um, it's it sounds like quite the story, honestly. So they found it like being used in the water in False Creek. Um, the, there Sorry, Julie. To back yeah. up a second. They found yeah. it being used in False Creek? <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Somebody was in your boat? Yes. That they, they had freshly stolen the that was undoubtedly all over social media. Yes. And it was amazing because so I don't have like Facebook Messenger on my phone, um, but I had received like later in the evening, I discovered that people were messaging me like, I see your boat. I'm on the bridge or I'm on the side, like took pictures. Of oh, this my all. goodness. Which was absolutely incredible. Um, and so, yes, the... <laughs> they was spotted, and I guess three different onlookers called nine one one. Oh my goodness! It had been spotted, <laughs> and the VPB just like so swiftly went zooming down, uh, caught these gentlemen, and um, and then took Saller back to the Coast Guard. Wow, this is like a James Bond heist story, <laughs> the East Van version, right? <laughs> Yes, it's, it is. And it was amazing because immediately the Coast Guard said he immediately knew the boat because of all of the, like, the news. And, Is your boat um, so popular? <laughs> yes. I know. It's looking a little rough, I have to say. Oh, He's, no. Yeah, it's looking a little rough. But nothing that Duncan can't, you know, and the girls can't do uh, fix. So it's missing the lee board, the rudder, the bulkheads, the oh, mast, the okay. sail. Oh, goodness. Um, there was lots of stuff in the boat um, that is, does not belong to us, but his handmade oars are there and the boat itself is there. So that's really good news. Okay. So it's mostly intact. I'm relieved to hear that. It's a little bit sad that it's worse for wear. Do you understand anything about how or when they took it? Well, 
No, because I mean, so the individuals who are found, I guess, in the boat can't be charged with theft because they like weren't caught stealing the boat. They were caught with like the possession of a stolen boat. Right. Uh, so I don't know if it was them. Like maybe they found it. I don't know. Um, but so I don't know that piece. But I guess these individuals are really well known to the police, is my understanding. I see. And did you get any intel from the people who were messaging you about uh, what the people were doing in your boat? Like, were they? I, I just I want to picture this correctly, Julie. Were they like acting like they're on vacation, or were they no. purposeful <laughs> about things? Yeah, so many, I guess, yeah, so no, and actually, and actually that would have been probably more devastating if somebody had just taken it for a bit of a joyride. Sure. Um, so no, they had actually taken a, a motor and attached it to the boat, <laughs> um, and like it's a sail rowboat, right? It's it's not really meant for a motor, but yeah. um, they had attached it, and I guess they were, my understanding is that they were collecting stuff from in and around the inlet. So like there was a an engine that had been salvaged from another sailboat and um, I don't know, probably what I would describe as junk, but I don't know what they were doing with it. Um, and I guess there was another boat that was kind of working, they were working together. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know the full story of what they were actually using it for, for but my under, like the impression I got was... Um, for collecting stuff in and around the inlet from other boats. Huh. And Julie, is the boat at home now or it's still out on the water? No, it's at the Coast Guard still. Okay. Um, so the trailer is gone and uh, we need to get home. But they, they've lifted it out of the water. They're going to give it a good rinse off because it's just scuffed and kind of dirty and whatnot. Uh, and then we will go reunite the whole family because... Duncan and the girls will come back from camping today, and so we'll reunite with it today and then figure out uh, exactly how to get it home and how to secure it up so it does not go missing again. Yeah, what's your plan for that? Uh, well, it's, I don't know. We're going to have to think on the spot. <laughs> um, we have space in our backyard, but it is a 14-foot boat, so it takes up quite a bit of space. Um, and, and it's heavy, so then every time we have to take it out, uh, you know, I asked my husband from the get-go, where do you plan to store this? Right? Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know. We'll figure that out. But I'm, definitely, guessing, like, I mean, yeah. I'm guessing, Julie, that maybe he said, oh, we don't need to figure that out. Let's just build the boat. <laughs> we'll just build What's the worst that could happen? At the time. I mean, he did buy a really good lock and a thick chain, but clearly that was not good enough to uh, store it in the view of other people. So... Well, yeah. I am relieved you got the boat back because I was following this story. And then when I opened up the news story that was a refreshed update saying that you guys got your beautiful boat back, I cheered having never met Thank any you. of you. I was so <laughs> yeah. happy for the family and for your kids and that they'll come back from the camping trip with uh, the boat back on your property at some point very soon. So exciting. Julie, thanks for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for having me on. It's wonderful. And just thank you to everybody who was a part of this. Yeah. And happy Father's Day to Duncan. He deserves it. Yes, he does. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.